Hello, I'm Ken Bruce. I appeared as a guest on My Time Capsule, and after that I had to give up a job I'd had for 46 years. <sighs> anyway, they want me to tell you that they've started a thing called Acast Plus, where for a small monthly fee you can get the podcast ad-free. For me, I think the ad's are the best thing in it. That Fenton Stevens, he does drone on a bit. Anyway, whatever you like, do something and have a go at it. ACAS Plus, my time capsule. Thanks, Ken. Charming. Anyway, to get my time capsule ad-free and for a bonus my time capsule, the debrief episode every week, subscribe to ACAS Plus. Details in the description of this episode. Thanks. Bloody Ken Bruce, what a cheek. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to the best of my time capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my time capsule is the podcast where we ask our guests to tell us the five things from their life that they would like to have preserved in a time capsule. Yeah, I suppose it's fairly obvious. They pick four things that they cherish and would like to have again, but they also pick one thing from their life that they wish they could erase, something they wish they could bury in the ground and never have to think about again. This particular episode is a look back, a collection of some of our favourite moments from our guests of My Time Capsule, taken from the first 56 episodes, which were released in 2020, from our very first guest, Stephen Fry, all the way to our very last guests of that year, Shane Ritchie, Arabella Weir, Milton Jones and Dune McKegan. So, we may as well start at the very beginning. And as Maria von Trapp told us, that's a very good place to start. I mean, it's not definitive, obviously. After all, the best she came up with as a definition of the word la, which I'm not actually sure even is a word, was a note to follow so. I suppose the feminine French version of the word the didn't fit the tune or rhyme. Anyway, enough of her nonsense. Look, when she began, she began with ABC, whereas we began with Stephen Fry. And here he is now. How would you start this podcast, Stephen? We'll start with a very simple and obvious thing, I suppose, because it opens up into a whole world. And that was, it's my grandfather's wind-up um, gramophone record. Uh, <laughs> record player, gramophone, I mean. Um, I discovered it in, in the attic um, and worked out how to use it with my brother. 
And there was a huge collection of these 78 records, these hard 78s. And um, for, the, for your listeners who are pretty uh, young, probably might not have ever used a wind-up gramophone, but it's very simple. It's, um, it's not even electric. It, you, you, crank, you hand crank it. And you put on the record, and the needle is, it's like a, I mean, it's a thick sort of needle that you can hold, and you shove it into this arm that has a membrane, or it connects all the way up to the famous, you know, big horn that comes out. Mm. And, and, and it, it makes a sound, and it's music. And the reason it was so wonderful is the collection of records was full of things I didn't know. It was a great mixture. There was classical music, things very obvious things like the Blue Danube. And mm. there was um, sort of jazz and swing. There was Frank, early Frank Sinatra singing Old Man River. And do you know there's a line of Robert Browning's, I, I can't remember what poem, I think it's in Pippa Passes, which is, uh, can we ever hope to recapture that first fine, careless rapture? <laughs> and you never can. You never can. No. And the fact is, I then, at the age of 11, listening to the Blue Danube or the um, Overture to the Barber of Seville by Rossini or whatever it might have been, or, or the Ride of the Valkyries, lying on my back, wriggling with an absolute transcendent joy at the music that was coming out with a hiss and a crackle and a jump. Um, in in a quality that we would now just regard as simply unacceptable. And you could pay hundreds of thousands for a system with giant speakers and the most amazing amplifiers and technology behind it. And I would never have that feeling that the music gives you. It's It's like first love. So it's that... It's that knowledge that is a sad knowledge that you can never go back and, and experience quite that intensity of joy that you have as a young adolescent. Um, but you have to recognize that that is part of growing up, is that mm. you know, you'll always enjoy the music and I'll still get great, great joy from all kinds of music. But that absolute feeling of... It's hard to explain, but well, I don't need to explain because I think it's common to all of us. And I'm sure yes. everybody can understand what I'm saying. We certainly can, Stephen. Stephen Fry there. Next up, it's the musician and rock star Rick Wakeman, who performed on many of David Bowie's greatest tracks, telling us about his first car. The first thing I would want to take with me would be my 1957 Ford Anglia 100E. I bought it in 1966, age 17, after just passing my test. In fact, I bought it before I passed my test. And everybody was after their first car. And the great thing was this is pre-MOT days, no MOTs. And, and all the lads in our local area, they bought their cars from one guy. Uh, and his place was called UC Slim. So I had a grand total of £30, which wow. I had saved up. So I went down to see UC Slim. So I went in there and he said, so, your first car, son, is it? And I said, uh, yes, yes, Mr. Slim. And he said, okay, and how much have we got? And I said, £30. And he said, is that to include tax and insurance? And I said, yes, Mr. Slim. (laughs) He said, okay. He said, I think we can sort you out here. And he took me out the back and there was this uh, rust-ridden, 100E Anglia. And I said, I thought, this is just wonderful. 
and it, it had been blue at one time, <laughs> but it was now a mixture of rust and filler. <laughs> and he opened the door, and the thing that I remember was in the back, there was no floor. The floor rotted, it had gone completely. But as I said, it's before the days of Everton, and it doesn't matter. It, ah, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter that it's got no floor. Uh, he said, yeah, I'll, I'll sort you out with this, this son. <laughs> so he said, uh, come on, I'll, I'll take you out for a, for a drive. So it wouldn't start, so he got some guys to push it, and it sort of like struggled into life. And we're going down the road up towards Wembley High Street. And I noticed that he's got both hands on the left side of the wheel, tugging really hard. <laughs> because it was pulling so badly to the right. Uh, and, and, and when he braked, it was it just shot even further over to... Didn't matter. Didn't matter at all. We got back somehow, and uh, he says, what do you think? I said, thank you very much, Mr. Slim. That'll, that'll do nicely. And he said, OK, let's sort you out. And tax then, you could do £6 for, I think it was six months tax or four months tax. And I said, insurance. He said, OK. And I remember to this day, he opened a drawer and bought out an insurance pad and just wrote the number plate down, my name and all the various bits and pieces, tore it off and gave it to me. And uh, and I said, oh, th- thanks very much, Mr. Stem. He said, whatever you do, don't try and claim. <laughs> and here's the lovely stand-up comedian Lucy Porter. I suppose I have so much memorabilia and things that I have collected along the way. I'm going to say collected rather than stolen, but um, a lot <laughs> of the time I do mean stolen. In fact, you know what? One of my absolute favourite things is is my. I've got a clipboard which I stole when I worked at Granada Television in the 1990s. And it's an object of great beauty, and I love it to bits because it's got on the front of it the old Granada TV logo, which is like a G with a big pointy arrow. And it says, Granada, we make television worth watching. And um, (laughs) I remember having that clipboard on the set of... Uh, stars in their eyes the live final and Richard and Judy and so it it came with me to a lot of important things early in my life so I think maybe I might put that in there and also it's a lovely reminder of the golden age of television yeah what did you do at Granada so I was a researcher what we call a researcher so I well I started off as a runner where you make the tea uh, for various things. Um, You've Been Framed was made there. So it was the 1990s. The entertainment department of Granada TV was uh, quite well-respected at the time and made all these big shiny floor shows, mm. things like Stars in Their Eyes and all the Shane Ritchie game shows, which were tremendous fun to work on. And so I used to do every kind of thing from uh, getting contestants. So I used to have to phone around and find people to come on the shows. And then I used to do the, you know, those awful interviews that the host has to do at the beginning where they say so Michelle you're from Horwich and uh, I believe you've got a funny story about the time you once met Bobby Davro and then <laughs> Michelle goes yes um, yeah I met Bobby Davro and um, she's the only one who's got a funny story about meeting Bobby Davro <laughs> even Bobby Davro hasn't got a funny story about meeting Bobby Davro no. uh, I love Bobby Davro 
I know the uh, the old Granada building very well. Or I did know it very well. I spent a lot of time there. It was um, it was a fantastic place, wasn't it? Oh, amazing! Along I mean, those corridors, where all with all the studios off to the side, and mm. and Coronation Street out the back. And the real original Coronation, well, not the original, but the yeah, real Coronation Street. And then while I was there, they uh, constructed Granada Studio Tours, which was like a theme park. So you could go into, they built another replica Coronation Street and then there were rides and it was so weird because you'd be working in the offices and there were roller coasters going past and people, (laughs) one day they got stuck, some people got stuck on the roller coaster just outside our window and we're sitting there trying to type up scripts and things and there's all these people hanging upside down looking slightly distressed. Um, (laughs) But it was an amazing time. It was just properly exciting making you know, stuff that the whole nation was watching. Because back then, it, because there was less choice, mm. you know, you did feel like, well, something like Stars in the Rise was a massive event and everyone was talking about it and the live final was really, everyone took it incredibly seriously in a way that made me, as someone who's naturally not very good at taking things seriously, kind of slightly lose my <laughs> lose my head and yeah, I just get to be there people like right Gary Barlow is walking Gary Barlow is walking it wasn't Gary Barlow it was, <laughs> it was some like it was a tyre fitter from Wigan but it was uh, yeah it was really exciting times and speaking of Shane Ritchie yeah, I, I've always said, when, I mean, I'm constantly being asked when I have my picture taken someone will always say to me oh you must get fed up of this and I don't, and if I'm being really honest, I don't know what they mean because I've, I can't remember a time, Mike, when I've never been asked for my picture. Because when I went to the holiday camp at 15, those that have been at holiday camps, you know, when you're a blue coat, red coat, green coat, for them people coming away even for a week or two weeks, while they're there, you are their entertainment. So every Friday night, everyone will want a picture taken with you. Wherever you are, they want your attention. Oh, there's Shane, look, oh, him have a picture taken, da 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 and like I think I told you this, I had a chalet at Pontins when I was 16. And if I wanted to get away from it, I'd go back to the chalet. And it was a tiny little room with a bed and a sink. It's all you had. Um, and I would lay in the bed and shut the door. And I was away from the business. I was away from the business. And as soon as I stepped out that door, you become public. I, I've always believed you're public property. And like I said to you, the only difference, you know, what, 40 odd years later is, I've got a nice chalet now. <laughs> the day I worry is when I stop being asked for a picture. I don't know. I honestly, hand on my heart, I can't remember a time when I've not been asked. So I don't know quite what they mean. No. And I've seen you do it. Oh, you've been there, haven't you? I've watched you do it in the middle of Benidorm. You know, we were filming Benidorm yeah. together and we were staying in a hotel and I thought that you would choose to go somewhere quiet. No, let's go down by the pool. Yeah. And all day long, people get coming up and saying, I'm sorry, Shane, you know, you couldn't just... And you were going, yeah, 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 of course. Yeah, you grabbing people's phone, phoning people up. You didn't mind at all. I've never seen anybody give themselves so much to the public. Well, mate, I, I, I believe it's because of the general public. We you know, we all have a career, whether you're, like I say, a singer, a dancer, an actor. Well, I don't, you know, who, who are you doing it to? I, 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 it's, it's difficult to explain. I don't know who you're doing it to. Who are you trying to appeal to? There was a time I, I, I always said, I want to try and appeal to my peers. I don't care about them anymore. My, it's, it's the general public. You know, when I do it, when I, you know, EastEnders, okay? A great big part of my life. Who are we playing to? Who are we playing to? The general public. So when I step out of that and they want to come up and they want to call me after you, I, I don't mind at all. And they want a picture. Of course. 
of course you can. I owe it to the general public. I've always believed it. I owe my career. And the reason why I've got a nice chalet is because the general public. That's not to say sometimes it ain't a ball ache. <laughs> <laughs> Shane Ritchie, who chose some amazing things to put into his time capsule, as have all of our guests. But of course, they've also all chosen something they want to get rid of from their life. Here's the star of Two Doors Down and The Fast Show, Arabella Weir, talking about her parents, and in particular, her mother. Yeah, well, the thing is, because my um, parents were so very, but particularly my mother, were so very, very and incessantly critical for my entire life about my weight, that's how I originally came up with Does My Bum Look Big In This?, And then when I decided to write a show uniquely about my relationship with my mother, but also about mothering in general, Mm. now that my children are grown up, it seemed to make sense to call the show Does My Mum Loom Big in This? Mm -hmm. Because I think the relationship one has with one's mother is probably, well, I mean, all the books say it is the most important and important Hello, I could speak. I'll put my teeth back in. The most influential relationship of your life, and it will inform so much about how you go about the world. Mm. And my mother was a... I mean, looking back, I think my mother probably was mentally ill, but because she was privileged and educated and posh, frankly, Mm. and had money, it didn't come to light in the way that it would have done... She'd have probably come to the attention of social services if things had been more reduced for us in other ways. Mm. Um, But she was very, very aggressive, very critical, very funny, but incredibly mean to me. And yes, I mean, one of my favourites, she said I was about eight when I began to get plump. And the weird thing is, if you look at the photographs, I'm not even that fat. I'm not one of those kids where you're going bloody hell. Mm. And... uh, she says, right, Arabella won't be having supper tonight because she's fat. Oh, Lord. And I was like, but, Mum, I'm hungry. And she said, good, that's good for you. Hunger is good, eating is bad. Oh, my word. And uh, so the show, there's a lot of those stories. I mean, it makes it sound like it's a misery memoir. It's not. The first <laughs> half is about 50 minutes and it's all about those stories. And in the second half... I make a joke by saying, so now I'm going to tell you about me as a mother and you won't be surprised to hear that I have got everything right and I've never put a foot wrong. (laughs) And so the arc I do is I put everything into context. My mother was a mother in the 1960s with absolutely no help, no guidance. And the idea, whatever class you were, that you just said, I am struggling. I don't know what I'm doing. I feel totally at sea here would have been out of the question. Yes. And, you know, my mother had been crazily overeducated to be then expected to be a diplomat's wife and do no more than look nice in a cocktail dress and not make a fuss. My mother was uniquely cut out not to be a mother. Mm. She was absolutely not equipped for it. The person she wanted me to be, and I I tell this joke in the show, was her favourite pupil at my school where my mother was a teacher, which was Emma Thompson. Uh, And for my mother, Emma Thompson was the benchmark. She thought she was just perfect. And to make matters worse, it turns out my mother was fucking well right. (laughs) Uh, She she was right. 
Yes. Turns out Emma Thompson is perfect. She is perfect. Uh, oh, Lord. In every possible way. Oh, so maybe she was right about everything. Oh, gosh. What, that I was fat and annoying? Mm. Um, mm, I think so. Thanks. Oh, my God. <laughs> it turns out my mother was right. <laughs> So, it turned out all right in the end. Arabella got a show and a book out of it. Hmm. Anyway, right at the beginning, in fact, episode four of my time capsule, we were fortunate enough to have the star of The League of Gentlemen and Sherlock, Mark Gatiss. A friend of mine, um, he, uh, his parents, is from Barnsley, and his parents were visiting London, and they were walking through Soho, and getting on so it was taking a while and he he nipped ahead down just off Rupert Street and there was a girl outside a you know massage par and he gave like 50 quid he said there's an old man coming around the corner when he comes around the corner just say to him Eric where have you been <laughs> <laughs> it was a beautifully type thing and then he just sort of wandered back and about five minutes later they finally came down the alleyway between Rupert Street and Old Compton Street and this girl comes out and says Eric He's got his wife. He's got Sheila. I don't. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> oh my god! Oh, that's brilliant. So good. Short and sweet, like me. Well, I'm short. Anyway, let's hear from another member of the cast of Two Doors Down. And also, Smack the Pony, This is Alan Partridge, The Day to Day, and much, much more. The wonderful Dune McKechn with the second of her items for her time capsule. Can you have living things? Yes. Will they stay alive? <laughs> Absolutely, they'll be looked after in the best possible way. Well, I'm afraid we'd have to first get him back from the dead, but it would be my parrot, um, Fred, my African grey parrot <laughs> that I grew up with. Um, I'm sure it's the reason I'm an actor. I'm, I'm, I'm not an actor, I'm just a parrot who can mimic people and noises and voices. Um, so I asked for a hamster. I got a wild African grey parrot when I was 11. And this poor bird had been like literally taken from the jungle, stuffed in a sack and found itself in, you know, some kind of hideous pet shop in Surrey. And it was totally wild. And it would make this terrible noise of just sort of ah, like sort of shrieking anytime anyone came in the room. And we were like, what? We just don't want this thing. It's too frightening. It doesn't love us. What, what can we do? So eventually it started to take a seed from my hand, from my little sunflower seed through the bars. And then once, maybe probably about a month after it had come, we were watching Top of the Pops and it started making the most incredible jungle noises. So we gradually turned the telly down and it stopped. And then as we turned the telly up, because it liked the music, it started making the liquid, beautiful noises of a tropical jungle. Wow. So, so wow. So he had sort of relaxed. We decided it was a he. We called him Fred. So we thought, well, should we, can we teach him to say anything? So we did, we did teach him to say, I can talk, can you fly? which we had heard in a Lucille Ball show that we thought was very funny. But then he generally started to sort of mimic sounds around and the, the jungle noises got less and the family sounds got more. It was just a brilliant kind of futtics end. You know, my dad, you couldn't quite make out the word. And then my mum, <laughs> and then my dad, Barbara, 
Anyway, we decided we couldn't keep a bird in captivity. What are we going to do? So we put him outside in his cage so he could get his bearings. I don't know how my mum sort of it was some kind of animal whisperer. She, she'd always rescued little animals when she was younger. So we put him outside in his cage and he got his bearings, I suppose, like a pigeon would. Mm. And one day we just thought, we're going to have to let him go and see whether he comes back. So we opened the wall standing around the cage, opened the door, and he flew up into an apple tree. And he sat up there singing and trilling and chatting. And it was so wonderful. And then he did a little flyby. Hmm. And we thought, oh, my God. And we were all thinking, is he going to go? What's going to happen to him? But he stayed up in the apple tree. So I climbed up the tree, picked him up at sort of as it got dark, put him back in his cage, shut the door. He stayed in there for the night. And we got him used to the idea that his food was in the cage, but he could fly around. And gradually he got more and more Oh, my God, he's flying in these huge arcs. But he always kind of stayed around, made friend with a magpie, <laughs> did exactly the same chat as used to copy the magpie's, you know, call, did all the birds. I mean, he was just amazing. Anyway, we moved up to Scotland and um, he got a bit lost the first few days up there. He used to fly to another house and knock on the window and say... Barbara, Barbara, people thought my dad was outside the door. Barbara, Barbara. And we'd go to his house, put him in the car, bring him home. And it was really the the thing of growing up with a bird that made us laugh, meant it virtually impossible to have a row. Because if anyone started rowing, he would just, oh, stop it, you are, and start shouting. And that would make us all just piss ourselves with laughter. Wow. Um, and he also would, in the middle of the night, would if people came to stay, he'd do this knocking and, and do calling. So people thought people were locked out. He was such a mischief monger. <laughs> so friends would come down and go, I think somebody's locked out. But he could do any sound. He could do, you go to the dishwasher, pull it open, he'd go. Argh, argh. He did the sound of a sequence of sounds, which was my dad taking a drink from the dining room, which was the door, then the clinking of the glasses. Then the... So we knew Dad was just constantly going in and having a quick tipple <laughs> from the sequence of noises, which was so the the you know the parrot rumbled, Dad's secret um, tippling. So he was uh, he was not favourite, but he he just could do any sound, he could do any voice, and he just allowed there to be humour in the house because you just simply. It was just so funny so much of the time. He gauged the atmosphere. So if someone was, I, I remember, you know, if Miss World was on, he'd be like, oh, <laughs> hello. Because <laughs> <laughs> he just knew what the, what the vibe was. Isn't that a fantastic pet? And what a fantastic guest Doom was. Anyway, we couldn't do a best-of compilation without including a little bit of Sir David Jason. So here's a bit from my chat with him over lunch at the Ivy Club about probably the most famous moment in any comedy show. For example, that falling through the hatch, which everybody thinks was, you know, a great sort of coup. And where that came from was John Sullivan, the writer, who said to me one day we were in the bar having a drink, and he said to me, I was in the bar the other night, the wine bar. So I said, oh, yeah. He said, yeah, I saw this piece of business you might like to do. So I said, what's that? And he said, 
I saw this boat. I'm just standing there, you know, sitting there. And there's a boat at the bar, and he was leaning on the counter and telling me. And he told me this. Yeah. He said, and what happened was, the the barmaid went through the thing, left the counter up, the thing up, and he went to lean, and he didn't. He he, he missed it, and went up, and then he looked around to see if anyone had seen it, because he was sort of embarrassed. And uh, you sort of go, yeah, well, I meant to do that. You know, sort of thing. And so John said, shall we do it? And I said, yes, yeah. I said, but I'll fall through the hatch. Yeah. And he said, yeah, but this bloke didn't. He just did. He said, I know, but I will fall through the hatch. So he said, well, why, what's that? So I said, because that's really funny, and I know it works. He said... How do you know? I said, because in farces, every farce I've been in, yes. there is a settee in the middle of the stage, nine times out of ten. And what I used to do was to lean on the edge of the settee, right, and say, and the thing I said to the vicar about was that, well, it wasn't really me, but what it was was get and miss the back of the settee. John, yeah. And big laugh. Sometimes round of applause and all that. And especially that thing, as a, and I bet you always did the thing that you did in the Only Fools episode, which is you'd come back up and pretend it hadn't happened. That's right. You know? Yes. What? What? Yeah. Where'd you go? Uh, so, what? Yeah. What? I meant to do that. Yeah. 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 Oh, anyway, so you're quite right. You're quite right. But that's daring to do it as Absolutely. well. I'm going to have a go that, at this. You do something like that and it doesn't get a laugh. Yeah. You've taken a big risk and yes. you look like a real fool. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And the, the audience sort of go, which on occasions they have done, gone, phew. <laughs> but what I learned about that is a learning curve as well, because mm. over the years that I'd done this in all the different farces I'd been in, I'd worked out, I'd learned, I'd learned how to work it. And one of the little tricks of it is this. If you go to lean on it, and then as you lean, you look, you look where you're going, and what happens is the audience go, oh, oh Christ, he's, he didn't mean to do that, Yeah. right? Because that's a natural reaction, mm. that if you did miss that, your instinct to save your head is to, as your eyes tells your brain very quickly, to put your hand out to save yourself, but your knee goes as well. That's the natural way to do it. Yeah. Mm. So... When you first start to do something like that, and you go, you go, what? That didn't work quite so. But if you do this, you looking at you, the audience, and I lean on this, and I'm still looking at you as I fall right away. And way you through. never take your eyes off me. Yes, that, that is, is that is funny, and that's the so audience. So anybody can look back at that clip and analyze it, and they will yeah. see all those moments in it. Yeah. It's not a simple piece of business. No. It's a thing that's developed over years and years and years yes. to that sort of perfection, which is why it was voted the funniest moment. No, I don't know, ever. I suppose so, but, but the, you've just put your finger on it that I was fortunate enough to learn. Mm. When I first did it, I scrabbled at it. It nearly happened by accident, and so my hand slipped a bit, and I saved myself, I think, I think, yeah. going back. And then I thought... I wonder if I did actually miss it. I wonder what would happen. <laughs> so the next night I went out and missed it, and it got something. Yeah. It got something, and then I realised, oh, but it doesn't get as much, and sometimes I heard the audience go, ooh, and I thought, oh, wait a minute, I think I'm hurting myself here. I'll just try, just try and look at them as though I'm in command. I know what I'm doing. Right. <laughs> and that was the trick. And there That's it is. That's what it was. Yes. And it was wonderful. 
Yes, it certainly was wonderful. Right, it's time to take a short ad break, but we'll be back very quickly. Well, about as fast as you can fall down behind a sofa and jump up again looking innocent. See you in a minute. Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey everyone, I've been on the go recently Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash post. Welcome back to the best of my time capsule 2020. And at this rate, I think this might be part one. Still, let's crack on with our next guest, the star of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Merlin, and about a thousand other things, Anthony Head, talking about the people he's worked with. I don't think I've heard of any of them. Working with someone like Meryl Streep. Ah, yeah, I've heard of her. Just quite remarkable. And in, and it's, it's on the same lines in as much as... Um, I remember the first, the first read-through we had. She was, bless her, she was late. She got caught up in traffic or something. And, and um, in a group, we all went, sort of said, I'm so-and-so and I'm doing such and such. And everybody, as people were saying what their parts they were playing, everyone was going, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said, you yeah, know, Anthony Head, um, uh, Jeffrey Howe. And there was a, like this, oh. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Right. Okay. Um, but no, seriously, Jeffrey Howe. Yeah. <laughs> yes. The, the reason they, they they thought I looked, they put glasses on two actors, and I I got it. Um, but, um, <laughs> Just two, apparently. <laughs> None um, of which looked like Jeffrey Howe. <laughs> Not what you're saying. That's very. But nice. she, when we had the first, you did look like Jeffrey Howe. Actually, it was extraordinary. Uh, I can't believe that you did. I must admit, I. I I was very pleased with it because the the note was don't you know this is you don't have to copy him no not this impersonation is not, you know, this is not an impersonation it's about finding the person mm-hmm. and I think I did all right actually but part of it was because Margaret Thatcher used to just rip him apart as time went on more and more and in the read through i can't remember whether i don't think it was a line i think she was just asking me to do something whatever it was i nearly shot myself i was like i didn't know whether it, uh, is, is she talking to me as an actor or or she, and it was basically she was talking to jeffrey but she just demolished me in like two words whatever it was and most actors loathe a table read mm. it's the most horrible thing and yes. everybody's always Awful, mm. nothing. Mm. Not I, I, I have done an American 
um, pilot table read, and I did the uh, the usual English kind of you know lay back and time. Yeah, mm-hmm. and they came up to me uh, about halfway mark and said, um, "Step up to the plate." Wow! If you don't, you're gone. Good so, <laughs> okay, right? I'll step up. <laughs> yeah, but then. Meryl, in, in when we were filming, the, there was a, a, a scene at the cabinet table, and uh, she's having a go, and she would just she just do several goes, just rolling. Roll and um, there was one point when I thought she'd forgotten her lines. She did the Margaret Thatcher kind of um, pause thing, and I turned to see if she was all right, you know, to see just that thing. And she was just staring at me. <laughs> and I think I did shit myself. Wow. <laughs> no, it was just quite extraordinary. It was just like, fuck, you know, that is just, that's not inhabiting. That is just, that's just somehow being, uh, I don't know. And at the same time, and I have, I've said this to a few people, but you know, you know that that thing of, of when you're doing a, a scene with someone and the closer to the, the camera to the lens you are, the more that the other person basically gets full on. Yes. You go right by the side of the camera, the yeah. camera shot is almost full on their face. Yes. Yes. And you work with some people who will be like a foot away from the camera. She would literally force her face up against the camera so, so that her skin would... And I'm thinking, oh my God, big a bit careful with that. That's amazing. That beautiful face. But yeah. just that there's, you know, absolutely no, I'm a star. Um, you know. No, your turn. Yeah. Yeah, I think we'd all like to work with Meryl Streep. Or this brilliant person, star of the huge QI podcast, No Such Thing as a Fish, it's Anna Tuzinski. Number three, I'm going to go for the top, the pinnacle of Arthur's seat in Edinburgh. So the mountain i'm gonna call it although it's very much hill in edinburgh for those who don't know it which is beautiful have you been to it you must i have seen it i've seen it many times i'm ashamed to say i've never been up it mike the number of times you've performed in edinburgh you've worked at edinburgh you've never gone up arthur's seat i'm always an outrage too drunk (laughs) (laughs) there's there's no such thing you're barely allowed to go up it when you're sober Fresh as tradition. Yeah, I love Arthur C. I, who, there's a really good quote about it um, by Robert Louis Stevenson, which is something like, "It's this isn't it, but look it up. But it's a mountain in all of its character. It thinks it's a mountain. So it's very sort of craggy. It's got a real gothic aura to it. And I lived in Edinburgh for seven years. It's my favourite city in the world. It's the best city in the world, objectively fact and uh i love arthur's seat and it was always such a good escape so in uni especially in first year at uni uh our halls our accommodation was next to arthur's seat and for anyone who's been in a situation like that like university or army barracks or boarding school and you're crushed together and then you introduce a lot of glenn's vodka sometimes it gets pretty uh pretty claustrophobic yeah and it was just bliss having arthur's seat there in the background where sometimes you'd sneak out run up to the top of it think okay it's good this is gonna be okay and it was just a lot of good memories there. So as a fresher, you know, we'd all, you'd go up at Halloween or you'd go up in the middle of the night and it's a beautiful spot. And from the top of it, you can look down over the best, the best city in the world. And the sea. 
and the Can sea. Can you see the sea from up there? Yeah. I don't know because I've never been up there, so I'm guessing. <laughs> You've heard. You've yeah. heard stories. I'm here to tell you firsthand. You can see the sea on one side, the mountains on the other, Edinburgh on another. And I got married up Arthur's seat, in fact, last year. Oh, so how lovely. It Congratulations. was. How was the weather? It astonishingly was beautiful. So we had a week in the Highlands beforehand, uh, me and my now husband and a couple of friends, and it pissed it down with rain incessantly for five days. And then we got to wedding day and there were three precious hours of stunning sunshine. So if that's not a good omen... No, this thing's going to last. It's going to last. It's got to last because the sun is on for three hours. (laughs) Well, I've got a fact for you, actually. Oh, yeah, go on. Um, Apparently, three hours of sunshine in Edinburgh is a record. Right, I see. Mm -hmm. As a a fan of Edinburgh, obviously I'm not going to take that kindly. Uh, (laughs) You'll be astonished to learn, Mike, if you spent less time, you know, hungover in your Edinburgh (laughs) festival flat and more time outside. The weather's actually often very sunny in Edinburgh. It's just very cold. Mm. Well, that's how I remembered it. Everyone else I went to uni with remembers it as pouring with rain the whole time. But Well, this last Edinburgh, I refused to take a coat because I thought, no. <laughs> you didn't? I thought it's... You didn't take a coat? Because it was August. It's mm. August. And, and right. I'm not taking a coat. Look. And I survived until the last week. And it was so cold. <laughs> and so wet that I went into a charity shop. Now, I would say this about Edinburgh, best charity shops in the world. Yeah, well, they know they're going to find a bunch of idiot Englishmen without coats. You know, they're, they're well stocked. They're waiting for you. It does have an excellent charity shop scene. You didn't bring a coat to Edinburgh. Come on. I know it's summer, but you still need at least five layers if you're going to go outside there. Yep. Yeah, that's slightly what I object to, but there we are. <laughs> okay, right, I'm going to top of Arthur's seat. And now I, you know, I can imagine what it's like, and I'll have to. Yeah, you will. Someone else can go up and get it, because yeah. I know you're not going up there. They can take a picture and bring it down to me. Yeah. That'll be nice. But you will have that lovely view. Take a coat, that's all I'm saying. Take two. <laughs> Anna Tuzinski, a naturally funny and fascinating person. I loved interviewing her, but then occasionally there are people that I have to interview that I get slightly nervous about. For example, Craig Ferguson. Yeah, Craig Ferguson was the host of The Late Late Show in the United States of America for over 10 years. He's interviewed just about every celebrity in the world. And then I decided to talk to him. But I think it turned out all right. After all, we go way back. But you've always had that skill, Craig, if I can take you a long way back. I remember in detail, actually, the very first conversation we had. We went out to dinner together and you talked to me about why I'd fallen in love with my wife in in extraordinary detail for about an hour. Well, I was, I, I, I have always been fascinated with you and Mandy because you found each other so early and so uh, decisively, which I, I think is, I think I was very envious of it then. I'm not so, I'm not so bad about it now. I mean, I've been with Megan for 15 years now and that's kind of like, it's all kind of settled in, but, but I was jealous of it then because I didn't have that. I didn't, I didn't find that for a long time. Mm. It wasn't. It wasn't in any way manufactured. The the interest of the That's, that was very clear at the time. Otherwise, I wouldn't have gone into such detail. I think. Well, I think most people are interesting. I, I, even 
Uh, and I, I hesitate to say this to an actor of such long standing as yourself, but even <laughs> actors are in trouble. Um, are you sure about that? Yes, I am actually. The, the, um, what's interesting about the actors is that once you get them off talking about acting, and when they talk about acting, it's like musicians talking about music. Like, uh, yeah, just do the music, don't talk about it. Yeah. Uh, for me, anyway. I mean, a lot of people are fascinated by the, why did you choose an F7 there? That's such an odd choice of chord. Like, I, I wouldn't know what I was talking about. And I feel like with actors or, you know, um, you know mole trappers, <laughs> if people are too, are too concentrated on the actual mechanics of their particular sausage factory, then I, I, get, I drift a little. Mm. But, but people who uh, have ended up in professions, whether it's acting or aviation mechanics, there's always a story. There's a, it's, it's quite interesting. And I think once you get to the story, that that's what fascinates me. Yeah. Or certainly that's what interests me usually. Mm. I mean, sometimes there's just nothing to say. Sometimes people are so guarded that all you can do is just talk nonsense or throw provocative pieces of of fun at them in the hope that they'll react. And that happened a lot when I was doing Late Night 2. You were just like, all right, there's nothing going on here. Just say something funny and hope that they'll say something funny back. Yeah. It struck me, uh, you know, when we were talking about a long time ago when you and I had a conversation, I remember I very much as a young man wanted to project the idea of how great everything was, you know, like how, how well I was doing, how you know, I was doing this and I was playing here and I made this much money and I'm going to be doing this television show or this movie or something. And I was like a walking promotional machine. And I, I'm rather embarrassed by that now. I think, uh, you know, but I, I, I see it as, as the product of being young and, and insecure. But I think that probably puts people off. It, it puts me off. When people are telling me how great they are, I... I think, oh, okay, I, you know. But when people tell me about their failings or their fears or their insecurities or their or funny things mm. even, I've always found that I had a lovely conversation, maybe I was about two years into doing Late Night with Stephen Fry, who I know you know Stephen mm. very well. And, and we were talking about the old days when we all knew each other and I, and I said, I was always very jealous of you, Stephen. You always, you know, you, you seemed you had everything. You know, you were, you know, Oxford and Cambridge for some reason. <laughs> you know, he, he had a, an old-fashioned, uh, he had an old noble name. And also it was a bit like chocolate. He was tall. He was very clever. And he was uh, clearly, uh, you know, coming to terms with, well, at the time, you know, I don't know if you remember, Stephen was celibate. Remember, he, he yeah. was celibate. That was his. That was his, his kind of trademark. Yes. Like, and he drove a London taxi. Yes. And he was just fabulously interesting person. I said, I, fe- I said, I was very jealous of you. And he said, Well, that's very interesting because I was jealous of you because you were drunk a lot and had a leather jacket on. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and it's true, I was drunk a lot and I did wear a leather jacket <laughs> and I was working class and I was, you know, I was. The grass is always greener. You yeah, know what I mean? yeah. It, it, and. And I, I think that that's interesting to me. It, it's a bar to communication. Mm. I think that no one gets to know you if you're telling people how great you are. It's okay, Caesar. Fine, <laughs> we'll put up a statue. You know, I mean, it's a, usually the people that I'm talking to, 
you know, if I was doing, you know, when I was doing late, you're talking to people because they're accomplished, because they've done something, you know, so that's fine. I remember when I was directing a film for the first time, I was talking to a very, very famous film director. I'll tell you, it was Warren Beatty, actually. Warren Beatty and I had lunch together and, and I was asking him about directing a film and he said, well, the, the first thing you should do is, is just try and say as little as possible to the crew. <laughs> Don't try and impress them because they've all got the call sheet. They've all seen on the call sheet that you're the director, so they're already impressed. The less you say, the more impressed they're <laughs> going to be. And I thought, oh, that's great advice. Yeah, yeah. Never miss an opportunity to not say it. This is me being quiet. Yeah, no, I like it. Yep, early days in my interviewing career. Still, I plough on. In fact, sometimes it's me that ends up being interviewed. For example, here with David Bedeal. Uh, have you got a pet? Uh, I, I haven't got any pets left, I'm afraid. No, they've all gone. <laughs> yeah, two cats died recently, and it, again, it was traumatic and awful. And uh, and then I had a chicken that uh, just the other night was, I'm afraid, eaten by a fox. Oh, that's that's bad news. Were you close to the chicken? Oh, very close. It's a great companion, a chicken. I had spent a lot of time in the kitchen. In, a lot of time in the kitchen. I spent a lot of time. <laughs> well, possibly the... when it was laying eggs. I imagine you had her in the <laughs> yeah. kitchen the whole time, just as a complete I egg did, service. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Come on, come on. That's I need another one. <laughs> I think people ever do that. I think people ever think, well, I can't be bothered to have it in the yard. I really need, you know, the chicken up here on the worktop, <laughs> basically shooting out the egg straight into the pan. So you wrote kitchen battery chicken. <laughs> That's a lot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. With its arse above a pan. <laughs> exactly. Right. You know, the catch fire is the problem there. She did used to lay eggs, but only until about three years ago. And then, you know, she just got too old and ran out of eggs. Yeah, like women do. That's. The chicken's gone through the menopause. Yeah, yeah. So what did you used to do when you hung out with... with, with the, what was the chicken called? Well, it was called Pecker. Yes, Pecker, I have to tell you, is a bit root one. It's a bit like meow. It is, for a cat. yeah. It's like calling it cluck or something. <laughs> you know? Yeah, feathers. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a lovely chicken. It was very sweet. It was not, you know, it just as you follow you around, sort of going... Yeah. And if I found a little worm while I was digging the garden or if I was working in, the, in my greenhouse it would come in there and just watch me work and pack away at a few leaves. Well, one of the things I, I very much think is uh, it's sort of like I think as I grow older but maybe also as, as, a, as a society as we as we grow is that animals uh the the sort of personality-ness uh, for want of a better word the humanness of animals mm. becomes more and more apparent to me like within a, an incredibly small range of expression by our standards mm. all of my cats have got very that I've ever had have got incredibly distinct personalities. Yeah, I think we're living at a time where we're realizing this more. Actually, the internet is very responsible for it because the internet is so full of small films of animals yes. doing often very human things. The more I see a gorilla in a swimming pool, like so, have you ever seen those? Sometimes you see like yeah. films of gorillas playing in like a paddling pool, yeah, or or a donkey that's seen its owner for the first time for five years and is incredibly emotional. You think like. Why are we pretending that these species are different from us? Yeah. Just essentially so we can eat them or kill them or poach them. Mm. Because they're not. They have clearly have the same emotions mm. that we do. Thanks to David Bedeal. Yeah. Did you enjoy your Christmas turkey? Right, here's another person we couldn't possibly leave out of a compilation of the best of my time capsule. It's David Mitchell. So what's next? Um, next... I'd like to put, and this, I don't know, I, I put, I, 
I thought of these uh, the other day, and now I'm I'm looking at where I'm going to seem awful. Um, okay. <laughs> yes, a Nazi flag. No, no. Um, it's no, no. Let me explain the no. Uh, no, I'd like to put in a footlight tie. Ah. And that's because uh, when I was I was at university, I was in the Footlights Club, of yes. which you obviously are aware of, and it's a comedy club at Cambridge University, and uh, it has a tie. Um, there are basically no occasions on which the tie is worn now, but the tie is sort of a hangover from when it was a more old-fashioned sort of club in the, I don't know, any time from the late 19th century onwards, and where people sort of wore ties all the time. But I'm very proud to have a tie of this club that I was very proud to be part of. So I'm putting that in as a sort of the symbolic object of going to Cambridge, meeting Robert Webb, doing comedy in a sort of serious but fun way, and that becoming a plausible job path. Mm. So that's my, that's, it symbolises that to me, even though it's sort of obviously slightly... Yeah. So what did you study at Cambridge? Um, history. History. So not really the great, well, I don't know, history, great source of comedy. It's, it's, now I think there's humour in it, but mm. I did basically very, very little work, the minimum to get through, because there was so much theatre and comedy that you could just get involved in. And it was brilliant. And it's sort of, I, I have to, you know, when things, when you start, because I've been doing this job for a long time now, and you can take it for granted that, you know, you've got this job and you, you know, there it is. Yeah. I, I've got, I'm, you can sort of lose, what's that thing? Imposter syndrome, when people feel that they shouldn't be there mm. and they're sometimes wrong about that kind of thing. Well, I think imposter syndrome, when, you're, when you've got a job as nice as being a comedian, is a sort of uh, important act of gratitude and <laughs> duty. If you lose the imposter syndrome, then you start shouting at runners, you know. <laughs> so um, I try and make myself remember how amazing and lucky that experience was i'd heard that people at cambridge had this club to do comedy and people like you know stephen fry and hugh laurie and before that john cleese and graham garden had been in that club and i heard that it was still going and i thought wouldn't it be amazing if you could go there and practice doing sketches and then that might be your job Mm. and it was just felt like that possibility, I sort of knew it was theoretically there, but it also felt like Narnia. And it happened for me. I went there, I did loads of comedy and plays, and now it's my job. And that's, you know, that's amazing. And I, however grim the world may seem, and in lots of ways, I have to remember how fortunate I am in that. And this tie is the sort of symbol of that. Yes. Um, so did you meet Robert straight off? When you... Yeah, pretty quickly. I was in, I met him in an audition for the Footlights pantomime. He was a year above me and was already sort of a Footlights committee member and sort of one of the people deciding things. And we were both in an audit, so he was basically already already in the show, although not officially. Mm. And I was just auditioning, and I just remember I remember him as looking very cool. <laughs> now that's. That was my perception, and my perception of cool is inaccurate. So maybe he didn't. But I, but I remember that he, he, he wore a lot of... And I'm now going to describe him, and maybe people say, no, that's not cool. That's <laughs> I remember he had quite long hair and earring and wore a lot of denim. I thought, oh, mm. that, that 
you know, not that's, cool. That's uh, that's, no, that's different. Really cool, from, yeah, yeah, that's really cool, right? Really cool, yeah. Yeah. I'm yeah. pretty sure he looked cooler than me, anyway. But, <laughs> uh, and, but I thought, um, but I also thought he was very funny. I sort of thought he looked a bit like he'd be into music, and yet he was very funny. And I thought, oh, that's and I'm, I'm discovering that not all funny people have uh, you know bow ties and. <laughs> And, and sort of James Callahan glasses, you know. And not yeah. more like the two Ronnies. Yes, that's it. That's yes. exactly what I've described, isn't yes. it? The, yeah, Ronnie Barker. Ronnie Barker. Yeah, James. that's a funny man. Yeah, got to be slightly overweight. Yeah, to be funny. That's certainly a principle I've held with. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, so um, yeah, so that was met him then, and then we did a, started doing shows together about a year later, and and that you know was great because we sort of have different performing personas and yet we find the same things funny mm. and we just really f- felt from the first time we went on stage together that we were greater than the sum of our parts that there was a sort of third element we it clicked mm. we were very lucky it clicked and we were very sensible to realize it and I, I think we both kind of thought all right you know this is this if we're going to do this as a job we're going to need a bit of good fortune and we're going to need to spot it when we get it and we did spot it, and things have always gone for us in performance terms that they, they just have gone a little bit better than than they might. Mm. And I think it's, there is a sort of um, performing chemistry that we stumbled across. Yeah, so, and easier to approach it as a pair. Well, absolutely, totally, and psychologically, uh, you're sort of dealing with stressful situations. There's someone else to talk to. Mm. Um, so was Olivia. Part of that yes. footlights as well. Yes, she was. She was. Um, she was in that same pantomime that Rob and I met. I was wow. also where I met um, her, and she was just. She was brilliant, and I do remember being on stage with her and being on stage with Rob and thinking, "Oh, this is different from mm. doing plays at school. This feels really like these people know what they're doing." <laughs> yes. And um, and then I was in lots of other plays at university. At, that I thought actually is quite like place at school. <laughs> but then, you know, not everything had, you know, a future Oscar winner and, and my future comedy partner in, no. you know. And, no, uh, I did uh, People Like Us. I think it may have been one of the first television things that Olivia did. She was extraordinary. Yeah. She yeah. was so perfect and so much better than the rest of us. And she'd never done anything. <laughs> so, yeah. No, there we are. Yeah. She, she's really brilliant. You hear a lot of people talk about meeting that sometimes people's success is surprising and you go oh no I met them and they were you know with her I absolutely if if you would ask me in the January of 1994 who that you've met will win an Oscar (laughs) I swear I would have said her yeah because um yeah she's brilliant yeah now I feel I should say something negative about her yeah yeah, you know yeah brilliant but um selfish (laughs) (laughs) Actually, yeah, all so nice. I mean, Not really nice, really no. nice and kind and fun and funny and has an impish sense of humour despite being nice. Not one of those impish sense of humours like mine that reveal actual inner hate <laughs> that I'm only allowing out to an impish extent in order to yes. remain part of society. No, no, just a nice little dig. But really, she's, you know, heart of gold. Uh sickening sickening yes well uh, she's not going in then yeah <laughs> no. but we are going to put your footlights tie yes please yeah. keep it beautifully ironed and neat yeah and Lovely. yeah try and get some of the gravy stains out <laughs> david mitchell showing us why he's one of the country's most popular entertainers 
Anyway, I've got loads of clips left, and I think this is probably going to be the last one we can put in this episode, so this is definitely part one. Let's finish with the marvellous stand-up comedian, Milton Jones, talking about something he'd like to put into the time capsule so that he can forget about it. Something he can bury in the ground and never have to suffer again. Well, actually, I was pleasantly surprised going through in my head how few things there were. I mean, a few things occurred, like um, the song Let Me Entertain You by Robbie Williams. (laughs) In that... Oh, please pick it. Please pick (laughs) it. (laughs) Well, I mean, I'm not sure I like the song anyway, but when I used to work a lot for um, some clubs called Jonglers, they played that every single show before the show. <laughs> and this was the last the last track before the show began. Uh, and I must have done hundreds of shows for them, for which I was very grateful and they paid the mortgage. Mm. However, you know when you do a show and there's a song in it, and forever after when you hear that song, <laughs> yes. it brings you out in goosebumps or <laughs> whatever it was. <laughs> yes, the emotion just before. That's what it does to me, whether it comes on in the car or something. I just shiver because I've done so many Christmas shows where you look out and there's a table of men dressed like Elvis Presley and there's <laughs> another stag knight over there who are dressed as Vikings oh, and no. head knight over here, none of whom are facing the stage, all of whom have jugs of beer and you know this is going to be carnage. The mm. best thing you can say is they won't remember it. <laughs> but you will. <laughs> yes. I mean, I, I remember once doing a show in Portsmouth and it was wall-to-wall navy. They'd all come off boats, no women. And before we went on, people had been thrown out for spitting. <laughs> and it's not about art at that point. It's about crowd control. <laughs> yes, survival. Yes, yeah, survival. And uh, probably the person organising it would say, do as long as you like. <laughs> <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I'm doing two seconds longer than I need to. Yeah, so that, that that is, I mean, that is something that I, you know, it's not Robbie Williams' fault, really, but it just brings me out in a very bad reaction. <laughs> I can't be doing with that. You have been listening to The Best of My Time Capsule 2020, Part 1, with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my lovely guests. Don't forget, if you subscribe to this podcast on Acast or the podcast provider of your choice, you can hear all our guests in the full My Time Capsule episode, plus loads more. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram to find out what we're up to. You can listen to the theme tune written by Pastor P's Music anytime you like on Spotify. You can learn how to make a wicker basket by watching... No, you can't do that, actually. Never mind. I'm sure you can find it on YouTube. This was a cast-off production and the producer was John Fenton-Stevens. Right, thanks for listening and we'll see you all again soon, I hope. Bye. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.
Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen.